the nature of it and where it actually comes from, if given space to like be itself, can be a superpower in a lot of ways. And people always use that term like ADHD superpowers because like there are things that you are good at that most of the world or at least the neurotypical world isn't necessarily as good at. You're listening to Refocus Together. And this is episode 22, Salif Muhammad and the Power of Self-Compassion. Welcome back to Refocused, a podcast all about ADHD. I'm your host, Lindsay Gensel, and we are in the home stretch of Refocused Together 2023. Refocused Together is the special project we started last year as a part of our commitment to ADHD Awareness Month. It became very clear to us early on after we started Refocused, the power of connection. When we share stories, we find the perspective, ideas, and tips that help us live our best lives which is why this series is so important to us. We created Refocus Together as a way to raise awareness of just how complex ADHD is and the different ways it shows up in people's lives. You just heard today's guest, Salif Muhammad. Salif struggled with chronic procrastination and a wandering mind as a kid. He would often lose things, forget what he was doing in the moment, and would need to reread things a handful of times before his mind could actually concentrate on what he was reading. Still, he could spend hours on the things he was interested in, learning many years later what hyperfocus was and how it was a feature of ADHD. Salif didn't receive an ADHD diagnosis until he was 28, and in a PhD program in Experimental and Applied Psychological Science at Utah State University. His wife's a mental health therapist who professionally helps people with ADHD. And she suggested that he talk to someone about it. Initially resistant to the idea, he went to his first appointment when grad school started to feel all uphill. Salif's therapist was certain of his ADHD, and diagnostic tests confirmed everything. It left him wondering why he hadn't been diagnosed earlier, and how he had gotten through his education to that point without any accommodations. Salif's personal journey inspired him to share his story and help others navigate ADHD. His TEDx talk, ADHD Sucks But Not Really, has garnered over 2 million views, and he's become an advocate for neurodiversity. Salif's currently an associate professor of psychology at Western Colorado University and is an accomplished expert in the fields of cognitive science and environmental psychology. He's dedicated his career to studying how people's environments affect their thoughts, emotions, and actions. Salif also loves spending time with his family and is an avid outdoorsman who enjoys fly fishing, hunting, and river tripping. His Instagram, at the dreaded fly, centers around getting outdoors. Let's hear more from Salif about his ADHD experience, how he uses time alone in nature to manage the busyness of his brain, and how building up the compassion he shows himself has been critical in his journey. And with that, let's meet our next guest for Refocus Together 2023, Salif Muhammad. We get all of these Refocus Together interviews started in the same way, and that's by asking our guests, when were you diagnosed and what was that process like? 
And what sparked those initial conversations for you? I was diagnosed when I was 28 years old. I was in my PhD program for cognitive psychology, cognitive science. And I've always struggled with procrastination, doing things when I'm supposed to be doing them versus at the last minute or at weird times. And that makes life pretty chaotic. By that point, I had a child. I was living with my wife. We weren't married yet, but we were a family with my child. And so that family life complicates things. You're not just single where you can create all your own problems, but now you're creating consequences for others. And so my wife talked to me. She's actually a mental health therapist herself. And she was talking to me about how she thought I might have ADHD, but obviously you're not supposed to work on your own family. So she was, she was urging me, even begging me <laughs> to go talk to someone else and get some type of an assessment or just kind of a diagnostic, kind of they have these diagnostic questionnaires. And I finally did for initially, I was very resistant and like offended that she would tell me like I had something like that. And so, but I did eventually go talk to someone and took those kind of diagnostic measures and definitely scored really high on having ADHD inattentive type rather than hyperactive or combined. And um, that just kind of translated. So then I got diagnosed and that was a very defining moment because if you have ADHD, you've had it your whole life. The only times where you don't have is sometimes like a trauma event or brain injury will start preventing or presenting as some of those kind of cognitive or like some of the same symptoms we look at, like executive functioning, attention, that type of stuff. But if it's, if it's happened following a major event in life, then it's not the same, like it's not ADHD in the classical sense of like, it's a neurodevelopmental condition. And so typically you have it your whole life. And so even though I got diagnosed when I was 28, it started making a lot of things from my past make a lot more sense, right? And so it was like, oh, this is why I could never find things that were right in front of me. And my mom used to get frustrated by that. Or I've always procrastinated no, bad, no matter how bad the consequences were after like something like that, like an all-nighter or two and my body crashing afterwards, turning something in that's probably not my best work, that type of thing those experiences never changed my behavior. So usually in a neurotypical person, you would see that behavior, like negative outcomes following a behavior tend to decrease the rate of that behavior. So a neurotypical person would usually procrastinate, have a really awful experience, and then is less likely to procrastinate in the future right? In the case of somebody with a neurodevelopmental or with some type of neurodivergence, those characteristics of that um, neurotype don't go away just from negative experiences. So I had always been like that and that started to make sense. And I don't know. Yeah, that was kind of, I guess, the diagnostic process anyway. I'm getting into other stuff now, but. How long ago was this? So that was about nine years ago. I'm 37 now. So that would have been about nine nine years ago. Just in the first question, you were able to connect so much science and psychology back. And I'm assuming that where you were in your PhD program probably helped prepare you a little bit for this 
big, life-changing diagnosis. But as you said, it was life-changing. What were some of the biggest things you noticed following, you know, this kind of like file folder that gets set down on your desk that has so many answers in it, and then you're kind of left to put the puzzle pieces together? It, it gives you a lot of answers. It helps you understand yourself in some ways, not perfectly, you know, it's still been a struggle, but in some ways it helps you feel like, like you personalize it less because before that, these are just things that people call like character flaws, right? So like, oh, you're lazy or you're disorganized. You have poor time management. You're apathetic. Like you don't care enough about your goals or things like that. Right. And so that those types of ideas coming from other people until the point where they start coming from yourself, those types of ideas are really harmful and they kind of get really negative. It's easy to get depressed and things like that. So getting a diagnosis wasn't just this magical thing where it all went away, but it helps you kind of like not internalize it as much. Know that this is a thing that millions of people have that has some strategies for how to navigate those challenges. That part was really helpful. Um, interestingly, cognitive science, even within the broader field of psychology, is specifically the study, the study of thought processes like attention and memory, um, executive function, decision-making, uh, working memory, and things like that. And so ADHD, most of its like key symptoms are kind of in the realm of what I was learning and studying. So that was kind of serendipitous, but my research wasn't specifically on ADHD or the ADHD population itself, but it was really easy to read like the literature and learn about it because I had an understanding of the like attention and like I said, executive functioning, working memory, things like that. And so that was also in some ways a privilege because most people might or pro don't have that training and experience and academic knowledge about the thing that they're also personally diagnosed with. Right. And so that kind of made that in a, in a sense was a, was a privilege to be able to understand it like that. I like that you use the word serendipitous because I have to imagine there have been points over the last nine years where you've thought about the fact that you went into something that is so intertwined with this major thing in your life. And like, what are the odds that you were headed down that path prior to even receiving the diagnosis? So interestingly, when I was an undergraduate student, I got the, again, a really fortunate opportunity to work with a professor on some research that led that had to do with the effects of like natural environments on human experiences, um, human uh, states of mind. So like feeling humble was kind of where we started, but reading about those nature effects on psychology led me to this particular theory that was originally published in, um, I believe 1989 called attention restoration theory. And that is the theory that particular types of environments are best for helping us focus and pay attention. And specifically, natural environments tend to have most of the characteristics that facilitate that. 
And so I was very into environmental psychology. That's actually how I got into cognitive science. Uh, I was avoidant of my cognitive science class. I dropped it and didn't take it because it was too scary and it, I thought it was too hard and I wouldn't get it in undergrad, but then started working in that area in grad school because of this attention and nature connection. So I very loved the outdoors and I was starting to study how, how nature connected with attention and get into that. And that's kind of how I ended up becoming a cognitive scientist. And then again, then learning I had ADHD. And so that was kind of all very, I don't know, serendipitous and interesting and weird that it all connected like that. And in some ways it might not have been pure coincidence, right? Like those traits of mine probably led me towards some of the activities I really like to do. ADHD is like a very like diverse array of activities, very dynamic things that are constantly changing and interesting, like fishing. And that puts me in the outdoors. And then I learned that the outdoors are pretty good for helping people focus. And so that was all very, I don't know, serendipitous in that way. And then come to learn I had ADHD. And so I was starting to put all those things together and talking about that is actually what led to my opportunity to do the TEDx talk. I want to talk about that for sure, but I want to go back for a second. So nine years ago, you're diagnosed. I'm wondering what you changed or what workarounds you started to put into place. And then if you wouldn't mind even fast forwarding to today, what you do day to day to make ADHD work for you and make it work against you less. Yeah, that's a tough question. So the thing is, I didn't figure out anything magical. If I had, I'd be very rich right now. For me, the path was more about self-compassion. So there are a lot of things that I still do. I haven't figured out the hacks so much. There are little things like I use my phone religiously for alarms. I used to always get told by people, even after I got diagnosed and um, was in therapy at times and stuff like, oh, do you use a planner? Well, if you get a planner, write everything down. But you have to remember to check your planner, right? So I have a stack of planners from throughout my life that only have writing on the first page and are otherwise empty because you put them away in a backpack, you put them in your desk drawer and you forget they exist. So when phones like be like smartphones came out and you're able to like set alarms and it, it yells at you and you don't have to remember to check it, that was game changing for me. So use alarms, set alarms for things you think are ridiculous to set them for like call mom, take out trash, you know, don't forget the broccoli. Cause I'll always make a meal and forget like to make the side. And my wife's like, we're supposed to make the broccoli. I'm like, oh, um, so I mean, like all these little alarm things, it's like, just use it. Um, that was one on the self-compassion piece though, kind of going back to where I tried to stop and, you know, was able to begin the process of stopping, like internalizing these things. Like I'm a bad person. I have, I'm just have bad traits, like I'm lazy, all those types of, all that narrative, um, having the diagnosis helped me. And so that's at least helped me with some of like the negativity that comes around it and beating yourself up because people are constantly telling you you're bad for all these reasons. So that helped with that. And it also helped me play to the strengths a little bit in a way that like helped balance that out. So it's like, like you asked, how, how has ADHD like worked for me? 
um, or have I made it work for me? I'm like, for it, for example, at my job as a professor, I'm perpetually behind on like some of the more wrote like administrative work, like grading or turning in like reports or forms or things like that. But like in the classroom, like my class is always dynamic. Like we're always going into all these different directions and conversations. I take a lot of tangents as expected, but like I lean into them because they, in, they usually come from an example of something I'm trying to teach and then lead all these ways and the students get really interested and stuff like that. And so I enjoy that part of me. There are some teachers that are very organized, but their class might be kind of boring and students, you know, there's a trade-off. So it's like, no one is good at everything. So just like be happy about the things I am good at. I also started working, broadening my perspective of what counts as work, right? Perfect example was the TEDx talk where I so I auditioned for it and was told about five months before the event, yes, you're accepted and, you know, we're going to work with you and it's going to, you know, and I was like really excited. Right. And so then I start on that path of preparing for it. But, you know, my procrast the procrastination in me, like I was always like, I need to just sit, stop, sit down and write this thing out, a script, write what I want to say. But I didn't write anything on paper until about two, two and a half weeks before the talk. I didn't write anything down and I was terrified. I'm like, it's like in two weeks and I haven't done anything. So I write out everything I want to say. And what I realized was that, you know, I had been thinking about what I want to say for months, for that whole five months. I used to ride the bus to work or to school. So I'd think on the bus ride, I'd be walking and thinking like anytime I had any moments to myself, I'd kind of be playing with like lines or things I'd want to say. And then by the time I did finally start writing it down, like two and a half weeks prior, I just had this whole thing. I wrote all these things I'd been thinking for months. I wrote them all down. And then it was like, okay, now I need to memorize this. I'm like, I have two weeks to memorize all this stuff. And like within one or two run throughs, I could say it from memory because I'd actually been rehearsing it for five months, not for just two weeks. But most people think like you're not working on it if you haven't written it down, if you haven't sat down and planned, and if you haven't gone through like this process of memorizing. The original version was like 33 minutes long and they were like, yeah, this is supposed to only be nine minutes. I got it to about 13 and they were like, okay, that's fine because they liked it. But that experience taught me that when everyone says I'm lazy because I'm procrastinating, I'm actually working. I just don't work the same way. Realizing that consciously kind of took me back to when I wasn't an undergraduate student in college. And I remember a shift around my junior year where I just stopped taking notes and just started listening to the professor and just kind of like an audience member, like you would listen to a talk. And I would listen to their lecture like that. And I started remembering way more because that was engaging my attention. Where if I was taking notes, my hand was making the movements and copying what was on the screen or like some parts of what they said, but I would be a million miles away. I wasn't thinking about any of it. So I wasn't actually learning it. And so again, working differently worked for me and like leaning into how your brain does work versus fighting against it all the time when you know it doesn't work the way other people's do. It, it's like, it's, it's, you're just working against yourself.
So that was kind of a, the process, not any specific little like management things like using, except for like using my phone for a lot of alarms, always stopping now for like my Google calendar. If there's an appointment or something, put it in right when you learn about it. Don't like try to go back and do it. You know, things like that. Um, people often say anything that takes two minutes or less, just do it then. Don't be like, I'm going to do this later. You'll never get back to it. Those are a few little things. But for me, the big thing was working on self-compassion and learning that I work differently and to count that as legitimate work and not like discredit myself for it. The title of your TEDx talk is ADHD sucks, but not really. And I'm wondering if you can dive into what you were thinking about when you put that title together and, and how it fits into your life. So when I was putting the title together, it was after I wrote that stuff down. So I didn't have very long. I had like a week or, or a week and a half and they needed a title. They're like, bro, we need your title. Maybe it was somewhere around there. And so it just came to me and it was just very, very straightforward about what I was talking about, but still in a way that I kind of liked. I just kind of liked that straight, simple, but capturing like it sucks, but not really because that's like, I don't know. And I think at that time, like, but not really was kind of like a soundbite that was around on social media and stuff like that. So anyway, it was kind of like the experience of it can be really hard, even to the point of depression, even suicidal thinking, stuff like that. But the nature of it and where it actually comes from, if given space to like be itself, can be a superpower in a lot of ways. And people always use that term like ADHD superpowers because like there are things that you are good at that most of the world or at least the neurotypical world isn't necessarily as good at, maybe like on average. And those are some of the things that I listed in that segment of the talk was just like, I'm good at all these things because of this, you know, not in spite of it, but because of it. And so I think that was kind of what that juxtaposition in the title of like, it sucks, but actually not really. The but not really part kind of is a signifier, like a shout out to people telling you it sucks, society saying it's a disorder and characterizing it that, even that, even though if you know it's not inherently you have a bad character because it is a diagnosis, even the word disorder is still very stigmatizing. And we know that it has a large genetic component and a lot of those traits theoretically were adaptive for humans that it might not essentially be a disorder, right? It can actually be something positive, but in this context of our modern industrialized world, it presents challenges and thus fits that technical definition of what a disorder is. It causes challenges in everyday life to the point of distress of the person. And that's the definition of a disorder. So the term comes from that, but I think the but not really is also part of just calling out society for saying something's one way when it's really not, or really has all these other things to it. I love what you said there about how ADHD can be wonderful when given the space. And I think, you know, everything you touched on with how society reacts to people who have ADHD or people who make mistakes or forget things and the shame and kind of the, you know, 
just the anger that can be pushed on a person because of that. I'm wondering when you look at life right now and the spaces that you have created for yourself, where do you see yourself thriving when it comes to your ADHD? It's interesting because this is kind of like a symbiotic cycle, but it's like the ability to be really creative as a problem solver is really helpful as you create problems. And so it's kind of like, in that sense, it's kind of like the balance there, a natural balance. So I'm constantly having to think on my toes and, and respond quickly and creatively to novel situations, which is one of the skills of someone with ADHD is that novelty, fast thinking, and creative problem solving. That's been one of the skills. Interestingly, certain types of resilience, which is again, kind of cyclical in the sense that like you need to be resilient to some of the stressors, some of the criticism from other people, some of the situations that you find yourself in that you've created and being able to quickly move on even emotionally. So that resilience piece is pretty big where you just need to move on from things quickly. Sometimes like if I get an argument with my wife, she'll be still upset about it like hours later the next day. And I'll, this doesn't help that situation, but sometimes I'll forget it even happened. I'll be like, oh, I forgot about that. But that's part of that resilience is that you're more in the moment, new things come along and you just kind of move along with those. And so you don't hang on to that as, as quickly. Sometimes those experiences are really bad. And when you're in it, it's really bad. But like that kind of like sleep on it or go do something else. As long as I get away from that situation and do something else, I'll be like better. So anyway, that resilience I mentioned the creativity. Ooh, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones I said way back then. Those are two of the big ones, I think, that have really helped from getting into some of the knowledge around creativity. Um, it involves two types of thinking. One is called divergent thinking, which is when your brain takes a situation and kind of comes up with all the possibilities of things that you could do in that situation what you can do with different objects or tools you have with the problem that you're faced with, um, just coming up with all types of possibilities. That's called divergent thinking because you start with a problem and your mind can go in all these different ways to just generate possibilities. Then convergent thinking is kind of the opposite, but works hand in hand with it where you come up with all these possibilities and then you start ruling things out, ruling them out to arrive at the best solution and what you're going to do. So ADHD is really good at divergent thinking. You can just generate possibilities of all these different ways that you see how things in the world connect that might not be as noticeable or come as naturally to other people. And then sometimes that convergent thinking can be a little rocky and like not such a straight process, but it does help you come up with those possibilities and ultimately arrive at something that's a good course of action. If you're in a group setting, like working on a team, then you kind of provide that divergent thinking to the team. And then through conversation, other people kind of help with that convergent thinking like, okay, what are we going to do going forward um, as a group? So that's one of my favorite parts about it. And that's part of where I end up with a lot of ideas where I start something and don't finish it because the divergent thinking process is very exciting for me like coming up with a new research idea, a new research project, a new hobby I want to try or activity or whatever that is. 
I come up with that and I'm like, oh, I want to do that. But then some of the work that goes into it, especially when you get, you start doing that project, you get into some of the more routine or rote things, just like entering and managing data or like sitting down to like write and things like that. That's where for me, I'm like, oh, but the fun part, like I came up with the project, we got the data, it was interesting. Doing the results and looking at the stats is really interesting too. But then it's kind of like, okay. And it's like, well, no, we need to like finish the process. But like the next novel, interesting project is always, is already coming to mind for me. And so I like that beginning of everything, but the end parts are kind of boring or like the practice and the work and that type of stuff. And so then like, that's where that part of that procrastination comes is sometimes I lose steam for things that I've started. I have to say, this was the funniest answer I have had yet to acknowledge that you are a great problem solver because you create problems that you then have to solve. And my goodness, if that isn't so many of us, I mean, that is that is very much me. I could list off a lot of problems that I very creatively solved, but they were also problems that I created for myself. Which is also creative, literally. I, cre- I create problems creatively. I create problems in ways no one else does. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Sometimes it is just so important to have a good mindset about it. And I love, you know, you, you go back to like the self-compassion, which I think is something that is so hard for human beings in general, but especially for people who have spent so much of their life being told that the way they do things is wrong and that they don't fit in and that they are not the right type of person for whatever the situation is. And it can be a lot. It's a lot to carry around. When you look to the future with everything you've got going on and all of the incredible stuff that you've done so far, what is really exciting for you? Like what's pushing you forward? I like my research. I have some upcoming research ideas that just about kind of testing different types of natural environments and actually starting to do that with an ADHD sample and kind of studying some of the things I've studied on just the general population with attention in nature and starting to do that with ADHD. So that's something I'm excited about. I would actually like to do a little bit more outreach about it. I do things here and there, usually things where after watching the talk or something, people will approach me similar to this. And I'd like to be a little bit more deliberate and kind of like offer that and put that out there, especially with like, I don't know, groups or, you know, going into schools and helping, you know, staff, administration, teachers kind of get a better sense of the reality of it and what their students might, what their lived experience might be versus some of like, you know, the textbook things about ADHD. The DSM actually leaves a lot of things that are the actual experiences of it out. So I'd like to do that. Maybe more talks. My wife and I have talked about giving presentations, offering like workshops or things like that as a couple and like, what is it like to be a couple where one person has ADHD and also from the interesting perspective of both being different types of professionals in psychology also. So she works with a ton of clients with ADHD and can help them from her own experience and my experience, but also with her clinical training. I, like I say, you know, I have more academic knowledge of these things but also the lived experience as a person. So with all of those things combined, we've thought about getting out there a little more, maybe doing some workshops, talks, things like that. 
I've always wanted. And again, this is one of the things where I had this idea that's really exciting, but like the actual work of it hasn't happened yet. But I've always wanted to write a children's book from the perspective of a child with ADHD and kind of what some of my um, experiences were growing up and that type of thing. And just to kind of that, and even so some intersections of that with other types of characteristics of a person, like their ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, people getting diagnosed with ADHD at, you know, like much older than I was, have a set of unique experiences um, at that age range as well. And so I don't know, those are like the types of things that I'm kind of wanting to get more involved in and looking forward to. I love that. They all sound fantastic. And I think what a better way to take your expertise than to really encourage people to embrace nature because there are so many studies that show people with ADHD thrive in those situations. And I know from me personally, every time that I am away from the city and it is quiet or I'm on a a long hike and you can just be in your brain and there is nothing else adding into it, oh my goodness, like the sky is the limit. There's actually... I'm not great at the term. I don't know a ton about mindfulness, meditation, and that type of stuff, but I think there's a term called like active mindfulness where it's like, you're not simply just completely quieting your mind, like in a traditional mindful meditation, for example, so fly fishing, um, which we were chatting about a little bit, I think it was before the interview, but that is an activity. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because when I am fishing and fly fishing, which takes so much focus and attention on just that activity, I don't think about anything else. So like all stressors, all problems, all of that stuff is completely out of my mind when I'm like standing in a river trying to make my fly land at that exact spot where I know if I let make it land at that exact spot, a fish is going to bite it and then it works. Like that is like one of the best feelings in the world. It's like if I can just hit that right in front of that rock, the fly will just right by it and then boom, and it works. Nothing else is in my mind. And there'll be some days where I just am in an awful place, just absolutely dysregulated, depressed, upset. And I'll be like, I need to go fishing. I'll go like from like one to four in the afternoon, one to five. And during that entire time, I completely forget any of that's happening. Kind of like that resilience piece where it's like, oh, it's out of mind. And then as I come back, I start remembering things like, oh yeah, that paper, that email, that whatever. But in that moment, so it's an active task, but it's very mindful in the sense of like, you're in that moment. You're not worried about the past or the future or anything. You're just in the present. And that is just, yeah. And so that's something that I really encourage dynamic activities. Because when you're completely quiet as someone with ADHD, I think mindfulness meditation is good and the research has shown it can help with ADHD, but it's really hard to like really empty your mind that way. And I just love things that just put me in a moment like fishing or anything else where there's like some type of task at hand, but especially in nature. I'm curious, at the time you auditioned for the TEDx talk and then finding out that you had been selected, did you ever have any hesitation about sharing your story publicly? No, which is funny because I maybe should have. I was like, after the talk and it was recorded and all of that, I was like, so every employer I ever apply to now 
is going to know that like, I have no privacy about this, right? Like I have no clinical privacy. Like usually your medical information is private and you don't have to disclose it to potential employers and all that stuff. And it wasn't because of just that, that energy and the impulse, like, oh my God, I get to do this. Like I was so excited and then I did it. And then it was put up on YouTube and all of that stuff. It's like, wait, I have like no control over this information. But again, that's part of like, I'm not that upset about that. I, I just thought I laughed at myself and thinking like, oh, I maybe should have given, been a little more conscious or conscientious about that. But really I like, it's been good because I don't, I like it as like a self-advocacy and as an advocacy for other people, right? Because then it's like, they can pair that with what my CV or resume looks like on paper. And that helps with some of that destigmatization as well. And it allows me to self-advocate um, because I can say like, look, these are the things I'm good at. These are where I struggle. Um, you can see some of my past products and successes and things like that. And if you don't like it, like farewell or whatever, like the best to you. And we can figure out each, you know, we can go our separate ways. But so it's actually been really um, liberating in a sense that I don't have that privacy because then I don't have to make that decision all the time. You now, every job interview, every, you know, whatever, it's because it's not just job interviews. It's like all these things where you talk to people, and you know, I've, I don't have to think, I don't have to make that choice hundreds of times, right? I made it, it's out there. I can't control that anymore. So it's a given. And that's another thing I really like about ADHD is just the ability to kind of like let go for some reason. I don't think that might be in everybody because there are some, like there's some comorbidity with anxiety and things like that. But that is kind of, for me, it's been helpful to be able to just like, kind of like the things I can't control. It's like, all right, how do I work around them? What do I do? Let them go and things like that. So when I've done something like that's out there, Anybody in the world can find it, look at it. If I am your, you know, an applicant for something and you search my name, I don't have a very common name, especially in the Western world. And so that's going to come up. Right. And so it's out there. And so I don't have to worry about it because it's, it's already said and done. Uh, but that was funny when I first got it, I was just excited. And I do, I don't think I really considered that or putting myself out there so much. And it was recent, it was relatively shortly, like maybe a little over a year after I was diagnosed. And so I was still very like into learning and learning more about it, relearning who I am with that new information. So it was at a time in my life where I was very, it was helpful to have a space to share and kind of like express myself and show myself in terms of how I'm feeling about that. And so it was kind of like, because I was like really excited. It was kind of the thing I was doing was figuring all of that out. It was really good timing in the sense of like, I get to just put it out there versus like later on, it might've been a little more reserved. I wrap by asking everyone the same question, which is when you think about what the general population knows and understands about ADHD, what is something that you wish they spent a little bit more time diving into to understand better? What our everyday life is like and like how things happen, especially when you get frustrated with us. I think that's a big one for me because I'm one of those people who likes to explain how something happened or why I did something 
because I, I feel like context matters behind a given behavior or something like that. And so what I would say is I wish they would listen more and have a little bit more flexibility or imagination about how things happen. Because I've met some people who are like, yeah, I really don't care about the explanation. This thing is still a problem or like it's hard to live with or it's difficult. I don't care so much about why you did that as much as I need you to not do that or fix it, which is really hard for me because to some degree, like it's not something I can fix. I can try to hack little things and try to work on different habits, but my mind is going to work that way. Like my nervous system is wired differently and will work differently. And so trying to fundamentally change me isn't going to happen. Whether someone's on meds or not, or whatever they're doing, you're not just going to completely change that about them. So I really, for me, it's like people listening and having, you know, even if I have self-compassion, I love to see more compassion from the world. Earlier, I mentioned that the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual in psychology for all disorders, it leaves a lot of things out. Usually it's when people hear those things. Like if you ask them, you know, do you do this, this, and this, and none of those things are really represented in the DSM, they're like, yeah, oh, and that's when they're like, I should probably go get tested or something like that. And I feel like that's in some ways like some misinformation. And again, had I known some of those things, I would have probably figured that out earlier for myself. So that's what I hope, you know, more psychoeducation, maybe an updating of that manual and just more compassion from the world and willingness to be patient and accepting and interested in learning how we got to a like a certain situation or an idea or something like that. I agree with you wholeheartedly on everything, especially the stuff with the DSM. It's so hard because there is just a disconnect. There's a massive disconnect between those nine things that are set in stone there and then the way it actually shows up in life and how people understand it. This was so wonderful. I appreciate your time so much. I'm so excited to see what's next for you. I can't wait to dive more into nature. The attention restoration theory fascinates me. I'm so excited to dive into that. And I just, I really appreciate you sharing your story and you do it in such a way where you're able to connect your expertise with your experience. And it is really wonderful. And I just, I encourage you to keep doing it. Thank you so much. I, I really had a good time. This was a really fun interview. I'm glad you reached out and connected with me so that we could do this. I am so glad I was able to connect with Salif for we focus together and share his story with all of you. It's clear he's done a lot of work building up the self-compassion that tends to be missing for a person with ADHD. Acknowledging that finding a way to be kind to himself, despite all of the things working against that narrative, it's a great reminder of the power we each hold when it comes to who we want to be in life, and more importantly, how we want to treat ourselves. I love this quote from Dr. Sharon Celine, featured in the November 2022 Attitude Magazine piece, How to Practice Self-Compassion with ADHD. She said, Self-compassion allows you to be good enough as you are, with your warts and your foibles. Sometimes you may be off-balanced, sometimes more reactive than you'd like, sometimes disorganized, but fundamentally, you are perfectly imperfect as a human being just like everyone else. 
She goes on to remind us that despite how loud that negative voice inside us yells, we do have another voice, one that can be stronger and louder than that shame-fueled wail, and it comes from the parts of ourselves we really like. A big part of Salif's journey has been identifying and accepting the ways that he is different. Instead of trying to gumby himself to fit others' expectations, he made the conscious choice to embrace those differences. I really liked how he said the big thing for him was learning that he works differently, but that it's imperative that he counts that as legitimate work and to not discredit himself for it. So how can we break the habit of internalized criticism? Dr. Celine offers up a handful of great suggestions in the article I mentioned. The first step, and this is something Salif touched on, is normalizing your experience. You are not the only person who makes mistakes. Also, newsflash, neurotypical people make mistakes too. We all do. It's a part of the human experience and really probably one of the most important things needed for growth. It's one of the many ways we learn. The next step is identifying how you got to this place. What's influencing those negative voices inside your head? Observing what happens when those little buggers come out to play can help you see patterns, which can help you with your plan of attack when you're ready to send those nuisances packing. The third step Dr. Celine offers for building up your self-compassion is identifying your stinking thinking. I love the way that she sets this up. You are not your negative thoughts, but you are the one who can choose to believe them. So what are you going to be doing to break that connection? Well, for starters, it's crucial that we externalize the shame. That's the fourth step Dr. Celine offers up. Giving our shame a name helps us identify what's fueling our negative self-talk and makes us more aware when it's about to show up for another round of let's beat ourselves up today. Like so much that comes with ADHD, finding your self-compassion takes work. And I get it. You are likely all worked out. I feel that way all the time. It literally feels impossible to add anything else to my to-do list, even if it's going to make my life better, more peaceful, even calmer. The good news is there's a lot of crossover when looking at the benefits for the tools us ADHDers keep in our mental health toolkits. There's a great article from our partner ADHD Online that lists off a few of the methods we can use to boost our self-compassion. To boost our self-compassion, including practicing mindfulness, writing a letter to yourself, therapy methods like compassion-focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, and taking a self-compassion break. That's a method created by Kristen Neff, a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research. The practice incorporates three elements of self-compassion through the repetition of three phrases. If you're interested in trying it out, there is an audio guide for the exercise linked in the article. We're sharing both ADHD Online's great resources along with Dr. Celine's Attitude Magazine piece in the show notes. I highly recommend checking both of them out. Another thing I found really wonderful is how self-aware Salif is when it comes to knowing what his brain and his body needs so that he can achieve his full potential and that he's found great coping strategies, like getting out into nature and fishing, to give his brain the break it needs. 
Something I've added to my own routine recently that I found to be extremely helpful in quieting down all of the different channels I have blasting in my brain at any given moment is Yoga Nidra. It's something anyone can do, truly. It was introduced to me as sleep yoga. You typically lay comfortably on your back in savasana or corpse pose while following the voice that guides you through the practice. It became a crucial part of my healing during that very long hospital stay and is something I'm trying to make a priority now that I'm continuing my journey back at home. I'll share a link to one of my favorite instructors' YouTube channels in the show notes, along with one of my favorite practices if you want to test it out. I just continue to be blown away by this community, and I'm so glad I got to meet Salif. I'll tell you, we talked fishing for like 10 minutes before we even got into the interview, and it reminded me of the peace you can feel sitting in a boat with your line in the water and nothing on your agenda except moving from spot to spot in hopes of finding a fish. Your calm might look different. In fact, it probably does. But when you know what it is, or even better, what they are, it can be easier to add those into your routine without too much distraction. I also want to thank Salif for all of the advocacy work he's done on behalf of our community. If you haven't already, I highly recommend checking out his TEDx talk, ADHD Sucks, But Not Really. We've also shared the link for that in our show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the work that we're doing here. Make sure to join us back here tomorrow as we share episode 23 of Refocus Together. And it would mean so much to us if you would take the time to leave us five stars and a review wherever you're listening now. And if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed to Refocused so you get every brand new episode delivered right to you every time they drop. Support for Refocus comes from our partner, ADHD Online, a telemedicine mental health care company that provides affordable and accessible ADHD assessments and treatment plans. To learn how they can help you on your journey, head to ADHDonline.com. And remember to use the promo code REFOCUS20 to receive $20 off your ADHD online assessment right now. The biggest thanks go out to our team at ADHD Online, Keith Boswell, Suzanne Spruitt, Melanie Mile, Claudia Gotti, and Trisha Merchandunny for their constant support in helping make Refocus Together happen. These 31 episodes were produced thanks to our managing editor, Sarah Platinitis, our production coordinator, Phil Rodeman, social media specialist and editor, Al Chaplin, and me, the host and executive producer of Refocused, Lindsay Gensel. To connect with the show on social media, you can find us online at RefocusPod. And you can email the show directly, hello at RefocusPod.com. That's hello at RefocusPod.com.